The Falling Middle Cast is a spin-off series from the creators of Mars on Life. This series provides review and commentary of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Since this series analyzes the text and provides a critique on class in America, this is not a comprehensive audiobook and follows all copyright claims. Now, back to the show. Well, uh, I am back on the Aaron Reich kick with uh, her son's reporting and writings, but this episode, I won't be talking about him, even though I easily could, because he's pretty good, and let's just say you're going to see some of his stuff uh, in your in your DMs down mm. the line. But on top of that, I have a different uh, beverage this time because I have shenanigans to get to later. So uh, here's to you. Here's that's, to me. And you know the rest. That's absolutely disgusting. I'm not saying that from a place of malice. I'm saying that from a place of you could have done so much better with the choice of can. I, I mean, this is like a missile. <laughs> it's just such a... <laughs> crappy choice though i mean just pure monster out of the can not even like the boomer white and blue one which i would go so far as to say is like is better but mm -hmm. i'm biased uh i've never met a monster i didn't like except that one So I'll retract that statement. It just tastes like piss. It really does. It reminds me of like old school, old school. It still exists. It reminds me of just regular Red Bull. Mm. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, now that you I say mean, that, the flavor does remind me a bit of that. But um, at, at that point, you're just drinking cough syrup straight out of the can. See, I don't know. Between this and Rockstar, it's like jet fuel. Like that's... I, I feel like I'm just going to the gas station and just putting petrol in my mouth, which is if probably can't, what the gas companies want. If it can't melt steel beams, what will it do to your organs? I, mm? Mm. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Use that Use that for your op-ed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's going to be a long time before I ever write another op-ed. But speaking of op-eds... Uh, Kind of, not really, but eh, why not? Uh, segue. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Falling Middle Cast, and it's episode 11. We're in our Matt Smith phase. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, we're now at that very coveted point in the book where we get to talk about the one thing that I think you've probably been clamoring for to talk about the most since oh uh, boy uh. <laughs> <laughs> easy joey easy <laughs> oh boy is this great um <laughs> love you pb if you're listening Hell yeah probably not <laughs> the neoconservatives and the new class i don't remember who ended it last time i think it was you 
I think. Uh, I think you started off the chapter, but tell you what, I'll let you start this one off, and then I'll okay. pick up uh, a cunning sort of treason, and okay. we'll go from there. Sweet, sweet. The neoconservatives and the new class. The idea of a left-leaning and power-hungry new class originated among a small group of intellectuals, centered around the journal's commentary and the public interest. Introducing these neoconservatives in 1977, Newsweek announced that, in intellectual circles, the social thinkers who were once the driving force of democratic liberalism, men like Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and John Kenneth Galbraith, have been upstaged by a group of neoconservative academics. Many of them refugees from the liberal left, including Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, Irving Kristol, James Q. Wilson, Edward Banfield, Seymour Martin Lipset, and Senator Daniel P. Moynihan of New York. Some of them were, in fact, refugees from Marxism. Many of them began their move to the right to, in the 60s, where we last encountered them analyzing the, quote, lower classes and denouncing the student movement. The idea of the new class was something they had first come across on the left, and which they refurbished in the 70s for the purpose of discrediting the left. Even the term new class betrays its origins, for in the standard Marxist description, there were only two noteworthy classes in capitalist societies, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. From a strict Marxist point of view, any other group qualifying as a, quote, class would have to be new, for Marx could hardly have overlooked anything as important as a major social class, let alone count more than two. <laughs> no, that was my addition. The, <laughs> the heretical idea that there could be a previously unsuspected social class in industrial societies had been incubated in that part of the American left, usually called the anti-Stalinist or Trotskyist, which had parted company with the Communist Party over the issue of the Soviet Union. And to the communists, the Soviet Union was a, quote, worker's paradise. To the Trotskyist, it was at best a deformed worker's state, at worst, the left-wing analog of fascism. From the 30s through the 50s, New York City's tiny band of Trotskyist intellectuals wrestled with the problem of what had gone wrong with the Russian Revolution, and almost equally important, how to characterize its disappointing outcome. What was the Soviet Union? asks jeering college intellectuals. Again, my line. <laughs> it obviously wasn't capitalist, but neither was it a, quote, dictatorship of the proletariat. If that unfortunate phrase was supposed to mean that the working class was running things. So who exactly was in charge? Evidently, and to my chagrin, the bureaucrats and something that could be called the intelligentsia were on top. But who, in rigorous Marxist terms, were they? <clears throat> The eventual answer was that the Soviet bureaucracy represented an entirely new and generally unforeseen social class. This interpretation received important confirmation in 1957 with the English translation of the new class by Yugoslav dissident Milovan D Delis. Can't help I, you with this. Okay. One. <laughs> Got it. Uh, Delis had been second in command to Tito during the Yugoslav Revolution. Now he declared that the revolution had been betrayed by a new class rooted in the, quote, political bureaucracy. All communist revolutions, he argued, had run the same course. 
declaring themselves victories of the proletariat, they had succeeded only in replacing the old capitalist class with a new managerial and bureaucratic elite. Sounds awfully familiar. For a long time, the communist revolution and the communist system have been concealing their true nature. The emergence of the new class had been concealed under socialist phraseology and, more important, under the new collective forms of property ownership. The so-called socialist ownership is a disguise for the real ownership by the political bureaucracy. And it was not at first obvious that there might be a similarly cunning class within capitalist societies like the United States. In the 50s and 60s, a few intellectuals used the term new class to describe the American professional middle class, but without passing judgment on the political ambitions, if any, of this group. Writing in the 60s, David Bazelon, a former Trotskyist turned corporate lawyer and freelance commentator, described the American new class as a politically fractious lot whose membership ranged from Herman Kahn, the nuclear strategist on the right, to William Kunstler, the radical defense lawyer on the left, from John Birchers to Reform Democrats. And it remained for the neoconservatives to discover a left-leaning new class within the United States, and in several ways they were ideally situated to do so. As ex-Trotskyists, many of them were familiar with the new class as an explanation for the power structure of the Soviet Union. Some of them were also aware of Bazelon's theories, which were first published in Commentary, a journal that had started out in the 50s on the left. Finally, as leading participants in the intellectual backlash against the student movement they had witnessed firsthand, oh, I'm sorry. Finally, as leading participants in the intellectual backlash against the student movement, they had witnessed firsthand the excesses of middle class student radicalism. The conservative inf inference was ripe and waiting to be drawn that the new student radicals of the 60s represented an American new class no less ruthless and potentially dictatorial than its communist counterpart. Michael Novak, so I'm just taking it all in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Michael Novak, a former liberal now at a conservative think tank, took the first step toward this startling conclusion. He stumbled across Bazelon's notion of the new class in Michael Harrington's 1968 book, Toward a Democratic Left, where the American new class was presented in a positive light as a potential, quote, constituency of conscience for the left. Novak, however, at once saw its utility as a weapon that could be wielded against the left. His reasoning, as set forth in a 1972 article in Commentary, was begulingly syllogistic. The student left belonged to a certain class. This class had its own interests. Therefore, everything that the left did was aimed secretly at advancing these interests. As he wrote, the new class co covers its political campaigns with an aura of morality so thick that it would make the righteous Anglo-Saxons of a century ago envious. Because two of its chief causes, civil rights, including poverty, and resistance to the Indo-Chinese war, are morally sound, it has been able to conceal its own lust for power and its own class interests, at least from itself. The most important of these class interests was patronage. Referring to the war on poverty, Novak argued that the left advocated a, quote, activist federal government committed to change. But why? 
Well, because such an effort would generate hundreds of thousands of jobs and opportunities for those whose hearts itch to do good and who long for a meaningful use of their talents, skills, and years. Soon, after the appearance of Novak's article, commentary contributors Lipset and Khan were identifying their political antagonists in class-like terms as, quote, the new intelligentsia and the upper-middle-class progressives. Norman Potteritz later described the neoconservatives' awakening to the existence of the, of the American new class as a rebellion, almost by a heroic band of dissidents. Repelled by the sight which the 1960s had vouch vouchsafed vouchsafed yeah what a word huh vouchsafed of what the adversary culture meaning the culture of the new class might look like in action and therefore of what it might look like in a in a in power a group of dissident intellectuals appeared on the scene to defend middle class i.e mainstream values as the indispensable basis of liberty democracy widespread material prosperity don't remember seeing seeing that in a constitution and a whole range of private human decencies the idea of the new class finally surfaced in the mass media in the 1975 wall street journal column by irving crystal the new class as he defined it consisted of quote scientists teachers and educational administrators journalists and others in the communications industries psychologists, social workers, those lawyers and doctors who make their careers in the expanding public sector, city planners, the staffs of larger foundations, and upper levels of government bureaucracy, and sh and so on. It's little bits like that, that, like, when you know who Irving Kristol was, and he's sharing stuff like that in the Wall Street Journal, it calls to mind, or at the very least my mind, that that's like the same kind of targeting that dictators like uh, the Perones and Pinochet in Argentina and Chile, what so they the... used to find their political enemies was they just say, oh, yeah, go after the teachers mm -hmm. and the scientists and the journalists because, you know, they're all... They're all educated, which probably means they're all uh They probably know... So... Yeah, they probably know more than the... Uh than the one who's trying to dictate. So, you know, potentially take him, overthrow. Put him in the helicopter, drop him in the ocean, and look, no more communists. Yeah. But also, you have no more teachers and journalists and scientists. Right. <laughs> so, this was, of course, the group in which Crystal, the sometime professor, editor, and by now neoconservative commentator, could himself claim to be a member in good standing. In any naked contest with the new class... Crystal warned his business readers in a later com column, business is a certain loser. In the late 70s, the idea took hold as the defining wisdom of neoconservatism, the sine qua non of any sophisticated attack on liberalism or the left. Every liberal goal can now be discredited as a cover-up for new class ambitions. Every supposedly generous impulse could be exposed as a self-serving uh, stratagem. Above all, any effort on behalf of the poor can now be understood as a scheme to fatten the public sector and expand the career opportunities of new class operatives. As Potteritz concluded, the new class, quote, represented itself as concerned only with the good of others, especially the poor and the blacks. 
but what it really wanted was to aggrandize its own power. Whew. I feel like I need a breath. Let me just let me just stop there. All right, class, let's draw parallels to now. <laughs> Does this still exist now? Denouncing the new class became an almost obligatory, obligatory rite of passage for men, and occasionally women, moving rapidly from left to right, as if it were the 70s equivalent of the Communist Party, something that intellectuals had to repudiate in order to establish themselves as trustworthy citizens. Indeed. Neoconservatives often use the term new class as a substitute for liberals or the left, suggesting that it was not a class at all, but a political party which everyone was free to join or leave at will. And like common... <laughs> You're shaking your head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not how political parties work. I mean, no, granted... you got to go through the effort of re-registering. That's a lot of work. It can be, yeah. I mean, yeah. hell, it's it's arguably smoother and better in Massachusetts than it is in California. Like, mm. you at least it feels like you at least get a better. I wouldn't say a better explanation, but you certainly get like more options. But and like Communist Party defectors in early decades, the neoconservatives cherished the conceit that they were the embattled rebels bravely striking out against a powerful establishment here we go if the characteristic delusion of the american left is that it has the mass support of quote the people the parallel delusion the parallel delusion of the right is that it's a lonely band of risk takers willing to stand up for capitalism when the capitalists themselves are too weak or befuddled to fight back i swear to god this is on a turning point pamphlet it, it could be it very well could be um God, way to feel way to feel like you're the party empowered or in way to feel like you're the party that wants to be in power if you're not even going to take yourself seriously in that description. Like, oh, if you're not going to fight by my side, I may as well fight by myself. And I'm like, okay, well then I don't like those odds. <laughs> you mean from the neocon side? Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, let's face it. The 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 this this plants the seeds for everything we saw at the start of the 21st century. Like mm -hmm. even, even down to what you just said literally is almost word for word. What Anakin Scott, I mean, George Bush said in uh, the speech where he An said, Anakin Scott, wait, what? yeah, because what well, a far cry. <laughs> Bush had the line during one of his, it was either a state of the union, bleh, state of the uh -huh. union address or, a special session of Congress where he said, either you're with us or you're or with you're the my terrorists. Enemy. <laughs> either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. I kid you not. George Lucas took that yeah. and said, oh, what, what if, what if, uh, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. Becomes, yeah. Darth Vader says that to Obi-Wan. Oh, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. But that's because Bush, even though he was a, a, a vacuous, you know, buffoon and charlatan he embodied everything that the neocons ever could have wanted when it came to domestic policy foreign policy you name it they got mm -hmm. everything they wanted almost thanks to him so i just find it really interesting how everyone feels like it can work if we just take a homesteady approach and i'm just like 
I hate to break it to you, but it's not like it's not the 1770s anymore. I don't think we're. <laughs> I think there's a lot less to lose here, and it and it's the whole discussion of like aligning yourself with a political identity because you feel like it fits your lifestyle choices and or how you treat people. Doesn't that sound stupid? Doesn't that just sound self-aggrandizing? Doesn't that sound like a needless ego boost when it it doesn't need to be there? Like, you can't just be a decent human being. You have to be a decent human being and a conservative or and a liberal. Like, you can't do what's morally right before having a political affixion to be affixed to. Right, right. I think that that's idiotic. I don't know. I mean, I... Well, I once thought the same way. Obi-Wan once thought as you do. Like, a decade ago. I, I, I really did. Where... Mm -hmm. It, it just seemed to me like, oh, you can't have somebody that, you know, just stands apart who embodies principle. I mean, it, it's the basic idea of, like, somebody that's a centrist or, you know, one. I mean, one of those, like, I, I don't know what you really call it. Like, libertarian's not even the right word necessarily, but, like, one no. of those types it, because of folks we're, that, like, we're trying to picks. assume. Yeah, we're trying to assume that there is no political backing for just being a morally obligatory obligatorily decent human being um i mean whether someone wants to affix political beliefs to that in order to strengthen their point i mean i, I don't know because you oftentimes you get those you get those extremes brought upon by oh i mainly see it brought upon by the right and i'm not sure if it's just because they want to have an image of equality that they're trying to spread, but I see more conservatives coming out of the woodwork trying to justify the fact that, have you ever seen a black conservative? Have you ever seen a gay conservative? Have you ever seen a Native American conservative? And I'm like, I feel like these are cherry-picked to some degree. Well, it's... In order to get your point across. <laughs> and it's like, why can't people just, you know... <sighs> I think I just find it difficult to always have to think what's morally unambiguous or not and then have to associate politics to it. It's difficult, too, because, for one thing, if you claim to be somebody that says, oh, well, I think this side has good points, but I also think this side has great points about this, it then boils down to, well, who are your supporters going to be? Mm -hmm. And who are your financial backers going to be? Because let's face it, right? I, I could think of two examples from the 2020 election alone that genuine, well, okay, I won't say genuinely because that would be <laughs> That list just false. gets narrower um, and narrower. Yeah. Uh, two people that tried to walk that line, at least from an optics standpoint, and those two individuals are Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Ye uh Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost said Andrew Tate. Jesus. Um, <laughs> but uh, what color is what color is your political party? Oh, geez. Uh, Yang had all of the the bros and you know the math hats and tried to act like as though he could get a different kind of silent majority than what Richard Nixon and Donald Trump and most Republicans mm -hmm. seek out and win. And the problem is, is that he was also trying to operate like that within the Democratic Party. 
And the, re the reality is, is that the Democratic Party has an identity. So this just goes to show that, like, you don't even need to be someone that calls himself a democratic socialist like AOC or Bernie Sanders to have mm -hmm. the party stomp on you. You could literally be somebody that's like, I'm trying to not be a typical corporate old hat gatekeeper Democrat who's been in working, you know, I'm not Dianne Feinstein. Like, oh, I, I want to be part of a new generation of voices, but I'm also an outsider yeah, no, we already got our platform that we're happy with, and we'll cherry-pick what we like from the left. But we also want to serve, you know, the interests of our voters and not scare them or alienate them. And then with Tulsi Gabbard, she she already had very frightening um, pro-authoritarian leanings as it was before she made the full departure from the party and then became a Fox News personality. So, and then you also get individuals like, you know, I hate to say it because I grew up liking him, but like Mike Rowe, who yeah. is you know, like, it's, yeah. it's so funny. Mike Rowe was the first sort of poster child for uh turning point for me, at least because yeah, no, really, because when during undergrad, I've said this before, I was recommended a lot of Turning Points videos and articles. And Mike Rowe, his video was about how, like, I believe the video verbatim, the title was Don't Follow Your Passion. And it wasn't supposed to be this, like, this uber anti-artistic take where like, oh, you know, your dreams are stupid. <laughs> it wasn't anything like that. It was a respectful, I, I would go so far as to say it was sort of a respectful dialogue dictating the needs and the needs and the wants and the ever-growing shift in demand of expectations of, of what a society economically needs. Blue collar work, white collar work, what have you. And right. I mean, back then, I would say as like an impressionable undergraduate who, hate to say it, kind of only saw things one way before being exposed to it. I took that with less than a grain of salt and actually kind of paid attention to what he had to say. But also just because, to your point, I think I saw him a lot more on dirty jobs as a kid than I ever intended to while watching daytime television. And I was like, oh, he looks familiar. So it was interesting to hear what he had to say. Of course, if you want to go take a step further and ask how I felt about going down the rabbit hole of, you know, say, Charlie Kirk, Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Greg Gutfeld, uh, what have you, that is sort of where I kind of stopped. But um, Mike Rowe, I'm surprised that you brought that up because I think you and I have a similar, a similar thing with him. Yeah, I mean, if he... anything, if anything, it was more interesting to hear him talk and give his two cents because he's not a politician. He's no. a businessman. Now, granted, we've seen what happens when businessmen come in political positions of power, but I don't know. There's something about Roe, man. It's it was a bit different. He made me want to listen to what he had to say more. I think his uh, his logic was sound. The fact of the matter is, is that as much as people strive to get degrees to 
justify the satisfaction of working in white collar positions. He did ascertain the fact that, hey, uh, what do you think makes the white collar positions go mm. in the background? And it was like, hmm. For a while, I, I, I considered uh, maybe a career in that path. I don't hmm. know. With Mike Rowe, and the reason why I bring him up in sort of a similar vein as Yang and Gabbard, and I, I mean, I'm trying to think of like other examples. Ralph Nader doesn't even come close. He's in a much, I would argue, in a much better camp than the three of them. But Rowe, what was always fascinating with him, I mean, obviously he was very much a champion of very blue-collar jobs, but so much so that you know, he made it clear that he'd be willing to do literally anything, and it, it, it garnered him this independence and this personality that just showed off, like, this This is, this is America blue-collar work and gumption, uh, at least from an optics standpoint, embodied. The problem... The, the dual problems with that, though, are the fact that he never really talked about, or at the very least, I don't recall very much about unions, which I feel like with a lot of the a lot of stuff he did on Dirty Jobs, I look back on. I never thought about it at the time because I was I was young, right? But I, I do wonder in hindsight, like, how many of those jobs were union and how many of those jobs mm -hmm. were really as dangerous as he made them appear to be. Right. Um, and then on top of that, he's been a champion for the types of things that uh, are killing the planet. Like, that's, that's you know, <laughs> like, like one good example very recently, I, I was just curiously looking through um, upcoming politics and current affairs books just because it's it's such a just so there's so much garbage there's so much garbage it's crazy there was one book in particular that caught my eye simply because i saw mike rowe's name uh on the cover of this upcoming book as a blurb the book is called game changer our 50-year mission to secure america's energy independence uh and it's written by and this is how it's written um, at least on the cover, America's oil and gas champion, Harold Hamm. And b right below that, there's a foreword by Mike Pompeo. Hmm. Uh, Donald Trump's, uh, what was he, like, Secretary of State, and before that he was CIA director, and uh, I, I think mm -hmm. it's safe to say Trump kiss-ass, too. <laughs> and, but the Mike Rowe thing caught my eye, because it says on here, Thank Harold for the bounty of affordable, reliable American energy you enjoy today. And, I mean, through the camera, I'll show you what this cover looks like as best I can. Right. You try and... Yeah, I can see it. It looks so ridiculous <laughs> with the guy, where, the old man in a hard hat, and there's like an oil rig with an American flag in the background. I mean... <laughs> looks like an I Spy cover. The, yeah, this this could be a portrait in Michael Bay's house. Like... Right, 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 right. So, you know, I I look at Mike Rowe as an adult, and I'm just, I'm filled with skepticism and, you know, I don't want to say disappointment, but at the same time, 
think it's one of those things where it's like you, you really you can't meet your heroes, even if oh, we never considered him like a hero. But it's it's like if we were to say that, um, oh, man, I, I grew up, loved watching Steve Irwin as a kid. And ever since his death, his family just, man, went went to hell and just started abusing animals. Obviously, that's not true because it's it's simply not true. They're, not they're right. an animal. Yeah, they're an animal rights. I would say one of the biggest animal rights activist organizations. So it's not a situation where it's like prior to death, in life, after death, and onward, where it's just a straight shot of a family that loves animals is a family that still loves animals versus a man doing his job and looking cool while doing it on TV. Surprise, surprise is of a political party that you won't, that you don't really happen to agree with. Um, I think that's just sort of the thing that it's sort of the discourse that you have to accept as you grow up. Um, oh, of course. And I mean, I safe to say I've, I've grown up from it because I don't, follow those political discussions online at least to a um overtly biased degree i don't have my news feed curated to to, to fox fox and only fox fox and, and oan so going back to the the original heart of the point and then we'll get back to the reading um i think back on it too just in terms of the overall scope of american history and it really is hard to find outside of the the presidential blunders or even the gubernatorial blunders, like a certain former governor of California, where you know you do you do cherry pick and you try to be, and even you know even Arnold didn't try to be, you know, nonpartisan, or it wasn't like he was trying to not be a Republican or a Democrat, but just finding any figure like that that actually had support and backing it's hard and it's one of those things that america even though we we try to espouse it and we try to act like as though that's achievable and possible it's never really been done successfully and unfortunately it's you know you you look I, I abroad can, and that's it's not successful yeah. either i can summarize it like this it's successful until people aren't willing to donate money to it well, because if no one's it's like you said, if no one's going to be backing it. Or if there's going to be dwindling support in the polls, in contrast to someone who's overtly left leaning or right leaning. I mean, shit, if it worked, we would have probably had an entire total drama island cast of uh, independents and, and third parties on the ballot probably taken more seriously than they are today if anything it's it also just goes to show how strong the parties are that they can have candidates that can masquerade as being you know even though they are totally conservative mm -hmm. or at the very least uh liberally conservative like somebody like joe biden it just goes to show you that the party backing really does matter because it can elevate somebody from looking like a, a fringe demagogue like Trump and like Trump be seen as somebody that, you know, even if it's just one little clip of, of him saying something, some apolitical average Joe could hear it and be like, 
I like that idea. That's good. Okay. Yeah. You know, and that's, and you can say the exact same thing about Biden. So it's, unfortunately, it goes more so it, back to the Woody Guthrie line. Um, it falls back into a people are going to go with what's most familiar to them at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, it's going to be one or the other, not one or the other. And by the way, pick and choose from the buffet because. <laughs> And you'd figure, you'd figure that in a democracy, you would have some semblance of equal representation, even for third party, you know, third party political parties. And I mean, I would say you could you could automatically weed out sort of the. Uh, oh, who's that? The representative of the uh, the American Nazi Party? Yeah, we don't we don't really need that, you know, but I wonder how it would be if that was what comprised our government. Where it's like the it's like the UN, you have people representing each country, but instead you have people one person representing each political party under the sun. And and that's how you you do have governments. I mean, Spain Spain's government works like that. But even in Spain, uh, oh God, well I remember reading about it years ago, and it was in a snoozer of a book. Um, the Podemos mm -hmm. party, like they were basically promised to be the equivalent of like a whole party of DSA style politicians and mm -hmm. they fizzled out and and like at this point I never hear anything about them granted how often do you even hear about Spanish politics anyway but <laughs> like yeah it's it really is something that you would think in a in a country like ours we'd have that but you know what it's it's not. Yeah. It's interest. It's all that jazz. And at the end of the day, it boils back. I, I was mistaken when I said Woody Guthrie. It was Pete Seeger. Um, it all goes back to the Pete Seeger line. And maybe it originated from Woody Guthrie. I don't know. But um, I should know. But it's been a long day. Um, and it's still daytime, which is good. Um, but it boils back down to this, which is the simple song title of Which Side Are You On? Mm -hmm. So, and with that, let's... Carry on. But why call the ideological enemy a class when it was actually a very different kind of group, defined more by its suspected political sympathies than by social or economic characteristics? In defining their new class as media, people and intellectuals... Oh, in defining their new class as media, people and intellectuals, plus professional and managerial staff in the public and nonprofit sectors... The deal conservatives identified a potentially important division in the professional middle class. Middle class people employed by private business probably are, on the whole, more likely to be pro-business, i.e. conservative, in their political views. In his influential 1984 book, Losing Ground, Charles Murray defines the elites that he blames for the anti-poverty -pro programs of the 60s. Oh, Charles Murray, bad guy. Oh. The group is, with no pejorative connotations, which means there's going to be pejorative connotations, best labeled the intelligentsia. It includes the upper echelons of, in no particular order of importance, academia, journalism, publishing, publishing, shouldn't have given that up then, <laughs> and the vast network of foundations, institutes, and research centers that have been woven into partnership with government during the last 30 years. Politicians and members of the judiciary, Senator J. William Fulbright and Justice William O. Douglas, are examples from the 60s. 
And bankers and businessmen and lawyers and doctors may be members of the intelligentsia as well, though not all are, depending on their political leaning, I'm guessing. It's not written, but I'm assuming if I'm disagreeing with Mr. Murray, I'm, quote, the enemy. This is also the same guy that tried tying um, race and intelligence to mm -hmm. each other, so... I thought that yeah. name sounded familiar. He's, he, he's, yeah... Oh, well, here's another joke, Murray. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had to make that joke. <laughs> oh, oh, you win. A... You win. Yeah. Win. Good night, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Let's keep going. <laughs> this is not the definite. This is not the definition of a class or a coherent social grouping of any kind. It is not even, as Murray claims, a good description of the group of people who deal professionally in ideas. Rather, it is an arbitrary selection of people who are professionals as well as liberals. Hence, the two liberal examples, Fulbright and Douglas, picked out from the larger category of public officials, and hence the humorously redundant explanation that not all bankers are members of the intelligentsia. Only liberals, apparently, can be members of the intelligentsia, he wishes to cast a G. Raising the question of whether it is possible, in his scheme, to be both a conservative and an intellectual like Murray himself. No, you can't have it both ways, apparently. Uh, obviously, there was some compelling satisfaction to be found in calling the ideological opponent of a class rather than a group of more humble dimensions, such as the left. In The Neoconservatives, Peter Steinfeld suggests that the notion of a class implied an aura of massiveness and threat. It was also, I think, a more grown-up style of invective than had been employed against the student movement. The attacks on the student movement had focused on the youth of the rebels, and the sharpest weapons had come from psychology. The young were overindulged or driven by unresolved Oedipal conflicts. But by the 70s, many of the youth were approaching their 30s. Moreover, theories of childhood indulgence could not explain to many, quote, fellow travelers, as Potterits termed them, within the older generation. Professors and public figures such as Dr. Benjamin Spock, who had come to identify with the radicalism of the young, the solution was to see the student movement of the 60s as one more manifestation of the new class drive for power, as Poderetz, quote, speculated. The new class was using its own young people as commandos, sending them out into the streets to clash with the enemy's troops, the police and the National Guard, while the elders directed the grand strategy from behind the lines and engaged in less dangerous forms of political warfare against the established power. Holy shit, does this sound familiar? <clears throat> the opinions expressed in this podcast are not of the DOD and are not, and are not reflective of the Air Force. This is my show. This is half of my show. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> In the eagerness to trace every disagreeable feature of the left or liberalism to the new class, the neoconservatives had lapsed into a cartoon version of Marxism in which all human actions and beliefs can be neatly reduced to economic self-interest. From this point of view, known on the left as, quote, vulgar Marxism, you have, you have only to identify a person's class to know all there is to know about that person's probable opinions on matters ranging from arms control to welfare reform. Oh, man. That won't be dated. The conservatives should... The neoconservatives should have known better. 
Aaron Reich pleads, the neoconservatives should have known better. For one thing, the class analysis that seemed to explain away all their antagonists could not, on the face of it, explain them. Imagine my shock. To anyone who is not a vulgar Marxist, it goes without saying that members of the new class or of the entire professional middle class can and will write anything they like within the limits of marketability, including diatribes against their own brethren. Class treason is an option at all socioeconomic levels, from the blue-collar man who becomes a security guard employed to harass employed to harass striking workers, to the heirs of capitalist fortunes who become donors to left-wing causes. I would say that the latter kind of has my respect a bit more. Uh, the student radicals who inspired the neoconservatives' move to the right had been class traitors, from one point of view, for attacking the university. In attacking those students as commandos of the new class, the neoconservatives now joined the radicals in betraying, or at least denouncing, their own class. An odd move, but hardly without parallel or precedent. So you mean the illustrious neoconservatives, the, the self-proclaimed one percenters of the world, joined the 99 percenters in harmony? Is the book over? Of course not. Well, they, they went from being the 99% to being the 1%. I mean, I kind of wondered if the remark in the beginning when they said, oh, what was it? Uh, here we go. Norman Potteritz later described the neoconservatives awakening to the existence of the American new class as a rebellion, almost by a heroic band of dissidents. I don't see that statement as like, very 99 percentary but i mean i could i could be wrong the neocons when they started off they they still for the most part they continued to really think of themselves oh well not think of themselves but think like marxists and so they continued to have this idea that despite the fact that they had a seat change that they were still representing most Americans' interests and ideas, but on top of that, realizing some kind of character flaw within themselves that made them think, okay, this is why I need to not be a godless atheist communist and why I need to be a good Christian who supports Ronald Reagan. There's a really good book about it by Daniel Oppenheimer called Exit Right, which focuses on individuals like, I think Norman Podhoritz is one of them, James Burnham, uh, Whitaker Chambers, Ronald Reagan, although Reagan didn't start off as a Marxist, but he was a liberal in the beginning. The guy was in Hollywood, for goodness sake, but he realized that he could get a better shake if he became more conservative in his views, and therefore, by being a spokesman for GE and representing, you know, companies that were American, then he realized he had to change his outlook and take a shot because somebody that I've been saying I need to stop mentioning on this season of Mars on Life, uh, I need to mention because he's the final individual mentioned in this book who arguably did make a shift from the more socialist left to the more neocon side of thinking, um, Christopher Hitchens. And, and he, he flip-flopped on the whole idea of like, well, I've never been a conservative of any kind, but he also didn't sound like as though he disagreed with neoconservatives on a lot of things, even though, for the most part, his agreement with them 
was almost completely when it came down to the Iraq War. Everything else he could have, you know, he disagreed with them on, especially, obviously, religion. So, and even when it boiled down to domestic policy and, you know, more blue-collar, working-class, middle-class issues, he kind of veered away from ever talking about those things, but he still thought of things from a very Marxist standpoint. So, it was this idea that they were representing America, and all that, all that its people represent, the problem is, is that they also carried with them those tools that you would see from the likes of anybody from, the, from Reagan to Bush to conservative name from the last 50 years, and their mm -hmm. logic and thinking would apply to neocons after they made the change from being on the left to the right. Right. Almost. Right. Almost. Because even, you know, again, like, even by the end, like, I know I've said this before, Hitchens, apparently his last words might have been, uh, at least it's been said to be, um, his last words were capitalism, downfall. Like, he still had some grasp on the left, whereas all these other figures, Chambers, Burnham, Crystal, Podhoritz, they all died conservatives through and through. So a cunning sh sort of treason... Uh, <laughs> I only said that because it reminded me of a line from uh, Die Another Day, a very bad James Bond movie. Um, <laughs> oh, Madonna. <clears throat> um, it is possible without succumbing to vulgarity ourselves to understand the neoconservatives' animus against their own class as being quite in keeping with the interests of that class, as they understood those interests. For one thing, the neoconservatives steered clear of attacking the central sources of middle-class authority professionalism, and expertise. If they had really wished to undermine the professional middle class or its new class subgroup, they could have demanded an end to such cherished defenses as academic tenure. They could have lobbied to loosen the, uh, the credentialing requirements that limit access to the professions. As the monster uh, makes its way up through my uh, digestive system. They might have supported the demands of urban African Americans for community rather than professional control of the schools, health facilities, and other key service institutions. Of course, the neoconservatives did one of these, uh, excuse me, did none of these things. It was the student movement's assault on professionalism that had roused them to arms in the first place. And it was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a future neoconservative, who in the mid-60s had articulated the case for turning the war on poverty into a jobs program for the experts. In a famous article in the public interest, he had argued for the professionalization of reform, meaning especially the war on poverty. Noting the exponential growth of knowledge, he had looked forward to the happy day when social change would be left entirely to the experts, making stupid controversies, mile-long petitions and mass rallies, as well as other hallmarks of public participation, obsolete. Uh, there goes your First Amendment, I guess. Um, in fact, <laughs> it is tempting to interpret the neoconservative diatribes against the new class as something very different from an attack. It was an announcement, in David Bazelon's view, of a new strategy for the professional middle class itself. By the 70s, middle class opportunities in domestic government and academia were shrinking. The war on Vietnam had swallowed up the war on poverty. An incipient tax revolt threatened future federal activism. Oh boy, that's... Oh boy. Uh, 
economic stagflation and the oil crisis seem to herald an age of limits. Oh, hey, it's like Reagan land, except instead of a thousand pages, it's half a sentence. Um, making up imaginary social problems and appointing themselves to solve them, which is what the neoconservatives now accuse the new class of having done in the 60s, would no longer have worked anyway. Budgets were shrinking for anti-poverty programs and for the cadre of planners, social workers, think tank inhabitants, and social scientists who were supposed to design and supervise them. If the federal government and the universities were no longer expanding, it was time to find a new patron for the intellectual vanguard of the professional middle class, and the neoconservatives hoped to find one in an obvious place. The corporate elite. Ooh. Historically, through the relationship between the professional middle class and the moneyed elite has always been tinged with tension and ambiguity. The emerging middle class had depended on the wealthy to subsidize the newly reformed professions and educational institutions that nurtured them. Men like Johns Hopkins, Leland Sanford, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller underwrote the huge expansion of higher education that took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and without which there would have been no professional middle class. But the professions are by definition, or perhaps we should say by aspiration, autonomous and not beholden to the mighty. Otherwise, they would have no legitimacy in the public's eye. Claims to professional objectivity and neutrality cannot be made from an actual position of servility. Within the early 20th century universities, the struggle for professional autonomy took the form of battles over academic freedom with the faculty on one side, yeah, with the faculty on one side, the capitalist trustees on the other. Oh man, I'm having, having undergrad flashbacks. Oh boy, um, those were the days. Such, such were the days. Uh, outside the university, the emerging middle class had clashed with the corporate elite over dozens of issues, drives for consumer rights, for clean food and safe products, for example pitted middle-class reformers against recalcitrant businessmen. Campaigns for good government sought to limit the influence of big money, as well as working-class-based political machines, and augment the power of the experts, city managers, advisory brain trusts, expert consultants. Even the concept of scientific management had originated in an attack on waste and inefficiency in business. Beyond these skirmishes lay a deeper conflict, the professional middle class has traditionally valued science, efficiency, and, quote, rationality. These are, of course, major selling points for professional and managerial services. But rationality implies at least some form of public accountability, for even the public can be expected to learn to reason. <laughs> Business, on the other hand, has no cause to value such abstractions above profits, and in the early 20th century resisted even the metric system as an unwanted intrusion by the experts. So ignorant, um, <laughs> so, so ignorance has just always been a choice. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. 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 No. I, yeah. Uh, not until well in the 20th century did the modern corporation emerge as a kind of compromise between the classes. The capitalist owners retained ultimate power, one might say, unlimited power no that's that's just me saying that um but, but daily decision making increasingly devolved to managers engineers and other professionals recruited from the middle class the tension between the middle class and the corporate elite persists to this day 
1989. It's obviously changed uh, since then, you know, in 2023. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Uh, and has reenacted in countless battles over professional autonomy. Professors may risk firing to express an unpopular opinion. Oh boy, this sounds familiar. Executives occasionally blow the whistle on an unsafe product or unethical procedure. Eh, not really. At least not nowadays, I don't think. Um, it is expressed also in the intellectual pecking order within the middle class. Professors tend to look down on executives. Pure, quote-unquote. Researchers look down on industrial scientists. Journalists look down on advertising copywriters. This is snobbery, but it stems from an allegiance to that elusive middle-class value, occupational autonomy, the freedom to direct one's own work according to inner principles rather than externally imposed priorities, such as profit. And it was this that the neoconservatives now proposed to abandon. In a Wall Street Journal column that could have been a cover letter for a job application, Irving Kristol coyly offered his services to the corporate elite. Rather than do donating, I said dominating, donating indiscriminately to philanthropic causes that might turn out to be run by anti-business new class members, he argued, a more positive step, of course, would be for corporations to give support to, these, uh, to those elements of the new class and they exist, if not in large numbers, which do believe in the preservation of a strong private sector. For the new class, fortunately, is not an utterly homogenous entity. It contains men and women who are interested in individual liberty and limited government, oh, who are worried about the collectivist <laughs> tendencies in society. How can we identify such people and discriminate intelligently among them? Corporate executives always inquire uh, plaintively. Well, if you decide to go exploring for oil, you find a competent geologist. Similarly, if you wish to make a productive investment in the, bleh, in the intellectual and educational worlds, you find competent intellectuals and scholars, dissident members, as it were, of the new class to offer guidance. It sounds more damning on paper until you realize that it just it just can't happen in practice, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like it could work. Mm-hmm. But will it? Of course, well, we know the answer. Yeah, I mean, until you start breaking down, well, what do you mean by exactly individual liberty and li limited government? Like, mm -hmm. you know, other than the readers, I mean, like I could get behind the fact that it's like, hey, I'm going to look for oil. Well, you're probably going to need someone who knows what you're looking for to 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 do that. And I'm like, okay, well, can't really argue with that. I suppose if it's going to be the best person for the job, then who am I to argue? But yeah, you you lose me when when they're worried about the collectivist tendencies in society. When I think one of the collectivist tendencies that actually happens to to, to do well is uh, finding the proper person for the job. I'd say that that's pretty collectivist. I'd say that that's a shared motif that we share. Well, it's it's now when you say collectivist, yeah. there's you don't ha there's. I'm not hinting a, 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 I'm not sensing a hint of like left-leaning politics when you say collectivist. Am I right? I would just go so far as to say that it, it just be a, it'd be in the collective consciousness that, hey, we're getting the person for the job that knows how to do the job in looking for oil, right? Right. Okay. No, I, I get, yeah. I get what you're saying. Well, I, like, I was gonna, I, right. Yeah. I, I was just gonna say quickly that, um. 
trying to see if I can find the exact who exactly said it. It might have been Donald Rumsfeld. Um, but it just it just reminds me of after we got into the war in Iraq. Um, one of the bleh, an official from the Bush administration might have been Rumsfeld accidentally called our operation into Iraq Operation Iraqi Liberation. <laughs> And listeners, I'm not going to say it, but I will say that you can, if you're able to know what that acronym is, well. I think I saw that on a Call of Duty box, because that's what it sounds like. It just sounds like a video game title. That just sounds so stupid. Just me? I don't know. You boil it down to its initials, and it's like, oh, that's what we're doing. Uh, That's what we're doing in Iraq. We're, We're bringing, we're... It's not even that we're bringing. It's like, oh, what, what's yeah. our purpose there? It's oil. Anyway. Oil. And we couldn't even get that. Um, as Steinfels has noted, he stopped just short of offering his phone number. This is in reference to uh, Mr. Crystal. Oh. If this was treason, it was treason of a very cunning sort. We're all careerists, Bazelon says of the middle class. We're very easy to buy. He, Crystal, opened up a new career line. For masses of young middle-class people, Crystal was anticipating the career choices of the 80s. Not sociology or public service, but banking and management. For the small intellectual vanguard to which he belonged, he was courting corporate patronage. Business, after all, could be a certain loser in any naked contest. Neoconservatives soon busied themselves holding seminars and lectures for businessmen on the dangers of the new class. What a quintessential new class activity, as one such lecturer himself observed. For such efforts, Crystal himself has been rewarded many times over, one of his emoluments being the corporate-funded Institute for Educational Affairs, which promotes research on, among other things, the threat from the new class. The corporate leaders who were the target of neoconservative sycophancy must have found the flurry over the new class a somewhat murky business. He sees politics as purely a struggle between intellectuals, one executive complained after having been treated to a neoconservative lecture on the new class. Certainly, businessmen had never been as exercised about the student left as many professors and intellectuals were. But they were alarmed by some of the 70s extensions of student activism, especially the environment and consumer movements. Universities might burn to the ground, and business would go on as usual. But if the public continued to demand safer products and clean factories, profits would suffer. It was comforting, then, to find out that the environmental and consumer movements were coming not from the public at all, but from the ever-inventive new class. William Simon, the millionaire secretary of the Treasury under President Gerald Ford and co-founder, with Crystal, of the Institute of Educational Affairs, revealed that the significant thing about the new movements was that they... Yeah, was that they represented, above all, the political voice of the contemporary urban elite. Citing Crystal, he warned that this new class combines a morbid economic ignorance with a driving power lust, and it combines hostility to democracy with the illusion that it speaks for the people. The people. Uh, if the political ambition of this class is not checked, and if it does not acquire the necessary economic education, about the virtues of free enterprise, the dangerous result will be the destruction of freedom. Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis. 
Um, Robert Bartley, editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal and a fair barometer of business opinion, wrote in the late 70s that the concept of the new class crystallized for me during the wave of student activism. But it was only later, with the emergence of movements for consumer rights, occupational health and safety, and environmentalism that he became convinced of something that looks suspiciously like a concerted attack on business by something that looks suspiciously like the new class. It was reassuring to know that this new class was just as money-hungry and unscrupulous as the business class it aimed to displace. Consumer activist Ralph Nader, hey, for example, claims to live in an 85 uh, dollar Claims to live in an $85 a month apartment, but an investigator known to Bartley found neighbors willing to testify that he actually lives in an eight uh, in an $80,000 uh, good lord 1971 prices condo owned by his brother Shakif. Yet, unfairly, it was business that was perceived to be materialistic rather than the new class. If it is more widely recognized that the new class has its own materialistic and power agenda, he concluded hopefully, this disparity will be greatly diminished. In the long run, said the Eagles, no, I'm just kidding, the most important converts to the neoconservative view of the new class were not the leaders of major corporations, but politically ambitious conservatives. Ah, I jumped the gun, but... Hey, there you go. Yep. 20th century American conservatism had had a rather thin intellectual tradition. There was William F. Buckley Jr., buttressed by the Austrian economist Frederick von Hayek, but few others. Conservative politicians like Nixon and Agnew were resentful of intellectuals, who, they correctly perceived, tended to be contemptuous of them. I know there's like a whole bit in the beginning of Nixon land about sort of the the intellectual divide that Nixon had with most conservative thinkers. And I'm trying to remember what the hell the names were. It was like the Franklins versus the something else. It, 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 weird, dumb college elite terminology. Um, but fascinating, just because it goes to show that Nixon really was that I'm going to go above and beyond kind of guy. And he still was trying to embody this like this undercurrent of of the conservative movement that really was that silent majority he was looking for and and yet he wanted to appeal and appease to the people that wanted to look at him as their next great conservative hero he it, it was like this constant identity struggle and he was never able to shake out of it. And it messed him up so much that by the time he got reelected president, like, I think that was when he actually felt like he was president. Even though he won in 1968, it wasn't until 1972 that he actually felt like he was president of the United States. And it's like, my guy, you're only going to be president for like another year. What? You know, uh, or two years. All this changed with the arrival of fresh recruits from the left, the neoconservatives bearing with them the most precious legacy of the left, the notion of class. Now it was possible to understand why, why there had to be no conservative intellectual tradition and why so many good conservatives hated intellectuals anyway. The intellectuals were part of the new class, and the new class hated America. 
One vignette before we move on to the new breed of political thinker who would pick up the idea of the new class and run with it. In 1969, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, whom we last saw advocating the professionalization of reform, accepted a job as Nixon's assistant for urban affairs. He greatly impressed the president with a memo attacking, quote, the service dispensing groups in the society, teachers, welfare workers, urban planners, nutrition experts, etc. That is, the very professionals he had recently encouraged to take over the business of policy, uh, policy making. Now he saw them as being in the resentment business. Quote, they earn very good livings, making the black poor feel put upon when they are, which is often the case, and also when they are not. Nixon was stirred by Moynihan's explanation of the new class and its motives, shoot, and wrote a note in his diary about what he called the American leader class. All right, listeners, get ready. <clears throat> it's really sickening to have to receive them at the White House, as I often do, and to hear them whine and whimper, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy very much more receiving labor leaders and people from the middle of America who still have character and guns and a bit of patriotism. <laughs> there, in ungrammatical outline, was the germ of the new right's eventual strategy. Embrace the working class and the business leaders and cast out the sickening new class. Thoughts? Prayers? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we, we sort of said it already, but then mm -hmm. Barbara filled in the blanks. So, yeah. uh, until and, next time, I mean, do you have any additional thoughts? I, I, I don't, I don't. And I mean, I ended last week's episode. So like I said, like you said, I already kind of said it all. I'll just quickly say that, you know, the whole trajectory of the conservative movement between this, uh, the 60s going into the 70s and obviously with Reagan as the the end point it's and I'm going to do my best to not just you know block quote Rick Perlstein but um it really goes to show how you can have a political movement that drives conversation that does drive thought and theory and ex uh, executes it in such a way that it's ever present, you know, it, it's something that is actually enforced and actually becomes policy and changes the thinking of the public. And, you know, obviously there's other political movements that have attempted to do that all throughout history. And, you know, even just isolating it to America, you know, the, the decades it took to change people's minds on slavery, for example. And then you fast forward to the late 20th century where, you know, you try and convince so many people about what's so dangerous about the rest of the world and make them so freaking terrified that they do resort to voting in people like, you know, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And you can extend it to other folks like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and even Joe Biden where... You really do make it seem like this us versus them battle that on one hand is it's just politics in a nutshell, but on the other hand, it really goes to show how strong dialogue can be when you try and claim 
the people as your own, and especially when you have a public that is not so... And I don't want to say educated and make myself sound elitist when I say that, but not so informed when it comes to class dynamics, when it comes to class conflict, when it comes to class warfare, that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if this candidate or that candidate uh, at heart does not have my interests at heart. It's just a matter of, well, they're going to... They're at least going to be better than the other guy, and my taxes won't suck. Or, you know, oh, my taxes were great, but this person is a clown. It winds up jostling the American public and the American working class so much that there is no conversation about, well, which side actually, by principle, has an idea on how to have my best interests as part of their platform. Because both sides represent more elite, wealthy interests rather than the interests of, you know, some farmer in Kansas. It, it boils down to very, it becomes very simplified. I mean, it's, and I know it was brought up at the very beginning of the reading with what Aaron Reich had to say about Marx and what he saw with class um, and the fact that it was like, there's two classes. And at the end of the day, there still is, you know, at the end of all of it, there still is, and especially when you have a proletarianized um, middle class, which is the point that she's getting at with this book that is becoming more and more fleshed out, then it becomes it becomes that much more clear that it is a one side versus the other. So once again, I end the episode with the Pete Seeger song, What Side Are You On? So, uh... Genius. Yeah, uh, with that, listeners, that's been the Falling Middle Cast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Falling Middle Cast. Our co-hosts are Ryan Mancini and Sebastian Shug. Episodes are produced by Ryan Mancini and feature music by Kevin McLeod. Check out our main series, Mars on Life, or listen to our other spinoff, Diet NIMBY, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.